0: Well, good morning. good morning. Great seeing you guys here and on a line as well. Welcome to Northland on a soggy Sunday morning, but uh, I am really, really excited about what God's doing, and I'm also excited that you came back after last week as we continue this journey into something that is pretty exciting, but it's not always comfortable, but it is an adventure. We have this adventure of grace that we're involved in. We're calling it Life-Giving Generosity, the series. It's a four-week series where we're unpacking what does it look like for us to receive God's generosity to such a degree that we give it away to other people. Now, we've got this new vision that's, that's the, the symphony to which we're dancing right now, or the cadence to which we're marching. This vision is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it mean to engage people? This is, uh, this is something we'll be exploring for a long time. But one thing that's true in both of those categories, what does it mean to be fully alive, and what does it mean to engage other people, both— of those things have something in common, life-giving generosity will be a part of both of those. I mean, I'm not going to be fully alive until I'm learning this rhythm of generosity in in my life and in my journey, and I'm not going to be able to engage other people with that life of the Gospel without learning that. Now, there are many ways to be generous. There's generosity with our, our time, our abilities, our gifts. So our talents, our finances, our treasures. And we. We always hesitate in anything. We live in such a consumer or a consumeristic culture that we start hesitating whenever asked to give of our time and our abilities, but, man, especially with our finances, and this series is about all three. Obviously, we're, we're grappling with the first. I found that if you, 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 you can begin to understand the financial generosity, the others fall into place as well, but it's not easy to talk about. Wells Fargo, a couple of years ago, did a survey of people. What are the most awkward, what's the most awkward uh, subject for personal conversations? And they went into it with the assumption that it would be death. That's, that's the most awkward topic. In fact, this article is called Taboo Subjects. They did a survey, 44% of people said the most awkward topic in one-on-one conversations and small group conversations is personal finances, 44%. Death was up there, but it was only 38, it was number two. 38% of people said death, is the most awkward topic. 35 people said politics. 35% of the people said politics and 33% said religion. So, out of all of those personal finances, it's, 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 it's a tricky subject to talk about, but Jesus did not shy away from it. And I think a lot of churches tend to because, and I'll talk about this again a little bit, because of the abuse that's happened in the name of religion and misusing Scripture in manipulative ways. and. It, Man, we've got to expose that. At the same time, we can't avoid the subject just because it's been abused. Jesus, in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we talked about this last week, one out of every six verses is dealing with money and possessions. 16 of Jesus' 29 parables, He talks about money and possessions. He talked about money and possessions more than He did, heaven and hell combined. Why? Because money is not powerless. It's either something to be wielded or something to be wielded by, something to be controlled by or something we can harness for good or, or for ill. We think that our personal finances, we don't want to talk about it because it's a personal private thing. The problem is what we think is private it isn't necessarily private, which is what Jesus said over and over. A number of years ago, I was planting a church, starting a church in downtown Chicago, Arlene, and I lived in a graystone walk-up down the Lincoln Park area, and a, a graystone had three stories. And we were on the ground floor, and we just had Andrew, our son. Now this is going to date me a little bit, but some of you guys, you millennials will just laugh at this. But there was a time when we thought it was a big deal in homes to no longer need a cord for our phone in the house. They came up, came up with these, pho- the, these phones that had an antenna that you pulled up, you guys remember those? And man, you felt like a secret agent walking around your own house. And uh, we also had a nursery monitor for our, our son. And this will also date me because I'm so sorry. The nursery monitors I've seen now, you guys have, they monitor uh, heart rate, EKG, breathing, uh, perspiration levels, their video, not just audio. It, it's unbelievable. I, I think our kids are going to grow up with a complex because they are being watched like that. But we had nursery monitors that were just audio. So, it's just a monitor — sorry, it's old school, but you can hear him breathing a little bit if you listen carefully, but especially if he started crying and getting comfortable. So, we had our small group. We're sitting in the living room. We got the nursery monitor on. We're talking. It's in a kind of a quiet, sensitive moment, then all of a sudden over the nursery monitor comes not my son's voice, but my neighbor's voice. He was on his cordless phone. And it picked up both sides of the conversation. It was clear as a bell. I'm listening to my neighbor talk to a friend of his, and we all kind of looked at the monitors, a little bit of an awkward silence. This is, we know we're not supposed to be hearing this, and so we quit our Bible study and listened to his conversation. (laughs) Just kidding. I went over, turned it off, told him the next day. The degree to which he freaked out made me wish I had left it on because he was really concerned that I had heard. I said, we turned it off after, you know, 30 minutes. Now we turned it off right away. But see, what, what, was, what was troubling him is what he thought was private wasn't. And what we think is private when it comes to our finances, it isn't. It, it comes out. The way, and what Jesus, why He spent time on is the way that uh, we, we approach money and possessions shows up in our lives. Last week, I talked about our generosity, our posture towards finances, and our generosity serves as a thermometer. A thermometer reveals the temperature. It reveals, okay, where are we at right now in this room? My generosity reveals, okay, w- w- where I am in terms of my submission and my maturity and my love and my gratitude. We, we think we want to be submissive to Jesus, and we want to be uh, mature in Christ, and we want we to be loving and want to be grateful. Uh, Jesus made it very clear, the rest of the Scriptures make it clear my generosity will reveal how submitted I am, how mature I am, how loving I am, how grateful I am. I can't hide it. I might think those things are private, but they show up in my generosity. This week, we're going to look at our generosity not just as a thermometer, but now we're going to look at it as a thermostat. Now this is old school because thermostats now are digital, but this is one of those dial thermostats. This is actually… We, we, I didn't, I didn't take it off the wall here, but somebody, one of our, our other guys did. We, this is part of our, one of our facility over in the rink. But you know the deal. You turn the dial, and when you turn the dial, that changes things in the climate. All right? This reveals what's happening. This impacts what's happening. Our generosity— is both a thermometer revealing what's going on in our lives, but our generosity will also serve as a thermostat. It will impact things. It will it will dictate the climate of our journey. Last week we looked at this passage from Second Corinthians. You got your Bibles. Turn to Second Corinthians, eight. I'll be in mainly in chapter 9 this morning, but in chapter 8, which is where we were before, Paul is taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. They hadn't gone through a hurricane, but it was a similar type of relief situation. He's taking up an offering. The Macedonian church had done some great stuff. He was using them as an example, and he said, but uh, he's also now encouraging the Corinthians. He says, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. So there's this notion of grace that comes with giving, the two go hand in hand. Uh, As I'm experiencing grace, I I, I learn giving. Now notice that excel there, those two words are highlighted. The reason is uh, there's a Greek word that we looked at last week that's the root of both of those. Uh, it's uh, persuo is the, the root. It means abundant. It means overflowing. It means over the top, lavish, extravagant. He says, just as you think this faith, just as you think that uh, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, love is, is important, make sure you think this grace of giving is important and engage with it. Now, remember that word, because now we're going to be in this chapter, chapter 9. I'm going to read the entire context here in a minute, but look at verse 8. He says, and God is able to bless you abundantly. Guess what the root word is? Same one, persuo, lavish, over the top, extravagant. By the way, this is the same Greek word that Jesus uses in John, uh, that is in John 10, 10. I've come that you might have life. I didn't come to give you a religion. I come that you might have life and have it persuo, have it extravagantly, abundantly. Not a self-improvement thing, not positive mental attitude, but a restoration to who we were meant to be to the glory of God in our lives. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, when he says, God has lavished His grace on us, perisuo, extravagant, abundant. There's am I'm I'm hoping you're seeing a theme here. You see it again in verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So there's a perisua that comes into me, the lavishness and extravagance that comes into me, and he says, I'm praying that you will in turn be extravagant towards others. So last week, this is the, the, what we focused on, that when receiving and experiencing God's extravagant grace leads to practicing extravagant generosity. That's why Jesus spent so He said, you get the gospel, you get my love for you, it will show up in your generosity, with, with your time, your abilities, your finances. And if I'm a hoarder of those three, it's a sure sign of a low temperature in terms of I'm not really getting the gospel, I'm not experiencing grace. So, that's the, th- that's the thermometer. Now we're going to do thermostat. Let's, let's add to that, it's not just experiencing extravagant grace leads to practicing extravagant generosity. Once I start practicing, Jesus takes the first step in this dance, but once I respond and I start practicing extravagant generosity, that will lead to a deeper experience of extravagant grace. And as I more deeply experience extravagant grace, I more deeply practice extravagant generosity. And it's not a vicious cycle, it is a life-giving cycle. And let's look at the context of verse 8 and see how this gets unpacked. Uh, Second Corinthians chapter 9, start with verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you can ask them in the back, they'll give you one at our our welcome desk. Uh, If you don't have it with you but you own one, you can turn your attention to the screen. He says, remember this, guys, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that all—this is the verse we just read—so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, they freely scattered their gifts to the poor. And their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed, and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. It's a beautiful phrase. We'll come back to it. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, this service that you perform is not only supplying the need of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. All right, I want to go back through that text, but I want to set the stage. You guys remember when we started unpacking fully alive, what does that look like? A, a, a factor in that is engaging with our longings. You guys remember that? Please say yes, please say yes, please say yes. A superficial engagement with my longings will lead to a superficial engagement with the Gospels, what we talked about. Let me mention four longings every human being has. There's a, those, those various things and you kind of begin to, to grapple with, with all of them, then all of a sudden you start realizing some that bubble to the top are security and fulfillment, significance, a desire for authenticity. So, keep those right there, and now approach it from a standpoint of your personal finances and your time and your abilities, especially in the area of our finances. We think the key to me fulfilling those longings is to hold on and accumulate. The Scriptures actually tell us the opposite. Let's look at those one at a time by going back through this text, basically verse by verse. My generosity will act as a thermostat by influencing those four longings, by influencing my experience of security. My generosity will influence my experience of security before God. How? Well, through my confidence in God's provision. Because as I am generous with my time, my abilities, my finances, I'm saying, God, you will be enough. Because typically we don't want to give because we don't think that God will give. We think, I've got it. I need to hold on to it because if I give it away, it's gone. We think giving means subtracting. It does not go back to the text and look at it one more time. Remember this, verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, I want to stop there just for a second. This is one of the most abused texts in Scripture, and one of the reasons people struggle with finances being talked about in churches is because of all the abuse that's taken place. And churches like, like us and many others that want to be up, up, upright in the way that we approach it. And we're members of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. And there, there, there stands there. There's plenty of people that aren't. You've turned on the, the, the religious shows in the middle of the night, and you've seen somebody abuse, abuse this text. Ending up with, as somebody told me last week, who's so excited that we're looking at this from a biblical perspective because he. He uh, works at an airport and works with instructing flying, he said, yep, I used to share a hangar with a preacher with a $70 million plane. I said, well, that's exactly what we're trying to do here at Northland, I'm going to take an offering here in a minute, we're going to lock the doors until you give enough. No. But, and I want you to hear this, as a result, I mentioned earlier, we shy away from talking about this if I, because of all that abuse. We can't do that. And I, I realize broaching this is a very sensitive subject, but, but telehuckster, and I'm, I'm not saying all televangelists, I'm not saying that, but there are some, you know that. The abuse of Scripture does not negate the truth of Scripture. When a passage has been abused, you don't throw out the entire passage, you look at it in the, in, in the context of what it was intended for in your personal journey. Now, here's what a lot of us do. It's been abused, so as a result we don't deal with generosity in our own lives. We use it as an excuse. My heart plays those kind of deceitful tricks on me. You know, oh man, there's all sorts of abuse out there regarding finances and giving, and so I'm just not going to give because all the abuse that's happened. No. When I'm doing that, I am so negatively impacting my walk with Christ from a temperature standpoint, and I'm missing out on the impact of my generosity that can happen like from a thermostat. So, keep reading. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, as it's written. They freely scatter their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Look, skip down a couple of verses to verse 11. You will be enriched in every way so, so that, so that, so that, so that, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God." We're all hoarders in a lot of ways, and it has a lot to do with our sense of security. And we think, the more I can clutch onto, the more secure that I'll feel. And actually, when I begin habitually giving of my time, my abilities, and my finances, I'm expressing confidence in God, and the ramification of that is a security that grows in me. He's got me. He's got me. Jules Verne wrote a a novel called The Mysterious Island about five escaped prisoners from a Civil War prisoner of war camp, and they escaped through a hot air balloon. They didn't really know that much about hot air balloons, but uh, won't go into the details of how they got it, but they're up there, these five prisoners, and they had time to load all they thought they needed, weapons and uh, clothing and, and gold. But to their shock and horror, as they got up higher, the wind started taking them out over the water, over the ocean, away from land. They didn't know how to turn it around, and so they, all of us, before they know it, land has disappeared. And then even worse, the heat in the balloon starts to subside, and so as a result, they start getting closer and closer. They're, they're, they're sinking basically towards the ocean because of the weight, and then they start thinking, we've got to get rid of some stuff, so they start throwing out weapons. It lifts, starts sinking again, they start throwing out more. The gold went last, as you can imagine. Raised up, and then after a while, they're, 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 they're sinking still. There's nothing left except for the basket that they're in. And they made the decision, we can rig up ropes and sit on the ropes and get rid of this heavy basket. They did that just in the nick of time because the water was right underneath them, and as soon as they did that and they cut the basket loose, they rose up again. And they rose up high enough to see land in the distance. How did they survive? By figuring out what was really necessary. And making some tough decisions contrary to what their comfort was. And so often what we think will bring us security actually makes us more insecure. Luke chapter 6, th- verse 38. Remember I, I mentioned earlier about the sowing and the reaping, and saying that verse has been abused by some telehucksters? Man, this one has too. Jesus said it, give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you used, use it will be measured to you. Now God is not a vending machine, but this, this text is, is true. Yes, it's been abused, but it's true. Is he saying, give and it will be given to you? I think so. So what's up? If God's not a vending machine, then why is that true? I think probably at the core, it's a matter of faith. It, because when I'm giving, it's, a, it's an act of faith that this time that I'm giving to this person, that God will honor that. I had a mentor one time said, not just with my time, but my finance, he said, do you want God to be your financial partner or not? And he said, in my journey, whenever I've grown afraid in my finances, I've gotten more generous, not less. Because of all that the scripture teaches about when I exemplify that faith, God honors that. So, when he says, give and it shall be given to you, he's saying, you cannot outgive God. You just can't, it's a thermostat. When I'm generous, it influences my experience of security and say, he's got me. There's a second way that generosity influences our our lives and our environment. It's in the area of fulfillment. My generosity influences. My experience of fulfillment, how? Through my — and I love this phrase, I told you I was going to come back to it — through my harvest of righteousness. will harvest righteousness. Go back to the text, verse 10. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed, and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What's he talking about there? When you and I trust Christ, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, (laughs) and if this is the first time you've ever uh, been to church, uh, congratulations. We've confirmed all your suspicions that churches. All they talk about is money. Um, But I'm hoping that you're picking up something different and know that we don't always talk about it, but it is part of the counsel of God. But when you came to Christ, or if you're going to come to Christ, this is what happens. I trust what Jesus has done on the cross on my behalf, and I'm given a gift. The Scriptures say it's the gift of His righteousness, His rightness. I'm made right before God. I'm clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. So when God looks at me, the Father looks at me, He doesn't see my unrighteousness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. You say, that sounds too good to be true. It's why it's called the Gospel. It's grace, Him giving me not what I deserve, but what I need. So, I have a status. I have a position of righteousness. Now my responsibility is just to pursue righteousness on a daily basis, not to earn His love, but to act in response to the generosity He's expressed to me by clothing me with righteousness. I'm never going to become more righteous than I am right now positionally before God. It's a beautiful thing, and some of what Michelle was talking about earlier, I'm a child of God. That's something He says. What He says is true, and we feel shame, we feel regret, we feel all those things, and we need to respond to them, but never in the midst of those have I become unrighteous again positionally before God. I'm just as righteous as ever. now. Same thing is true with being alive in Christ. Once I've made alive, I've, I've become alive in Christ, my status is alive. But to experience that life of the gospel is involves a daily choices of submission and obedience and trust. Tracking so far? Okay. What Paul is saying is you've been given this gift of righteousness. You want to harvest the fruit of it? You want to experience the beauty of it, that's going to come out in your generosity. The more generous I am, the more I experience the harvest of the righteousness that He's, he's already given me. People will talk about, I hear people say, and I, people get really angry about conversations about money in church. And I I get that because of all we've talked about, but I also hear people say money is not a spiritual issue. It could not be more than a—it could not—that could not be more incorrect. In fact, here's a text that if it weren't in the Bible and Jesus, I don't know that I'd—I'd blown away that it's in Scripture, but Jesus says it. Luke chapter 16, verse 11, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, Who will trust you with true riches? There are people that say that my finances are irrelevant in my walk with God. That says the exact opposite. The reason I'm pausing is I I simply want you to trust Him. This is safe water, go in and let Him speak to you so, the way that I approach money and possessions has a direct thermostat influence on my walk with God and my fulfillment in the Gospel. Uh, Yesterday, a mentor of mine, really mainly through the written word, although I've had some personal engagements with him, had an opportunity to be with him for a weekend with a — just a couple of other couples. But Eugene Peterson, who's the author of The Message and a number of other books, he passed away the uh, week before last, but yesterday, this weekend is his memorial service. And so, I've been rereading some of the things that he wrote. Eugene just it was an amazing, encouragement. In fact, there, was, there were other people that might have encouraged me as much, nobody encouraged me more regarding the writing of my book than, than Eugene did. He got it. He spoke life into me. And just in memory of him, on I'm just going back through some of his books. And I shared this with you guys a couple of years ago, but I'm going to share it again because I just reread it. He's an artist with words. I'm going to read you a quote, but let me give you the context. He loved the outdoors, and he was on a walk, he was sitting by a tree, by a tree that was overhanging a lake. It was a low branch, dead branch, and on the branch he noticed a, a mother swallow and three little swallows. And all of a sudden, it dawned on him what was happening after the first—it happened with the first—she's teaching her kids to fly. They're just brand new. So, she's on a branch. She's between them and the trunk of the tree, and she starts moving out bumps into one little swallow, that swallow bumps into his his little sister, or I guess it's twin sister, and twin sister bumps into her twin brother, and poor little guy on the end, he gets the raw end of the, the branch, literally, because after a while, there's no branch left. He gets bumped off by the others, opens up and flies. Same thing happened with the second one. The third one was not going so easily, he said. The third one actually relaxed its clutch on the branch and swung underneath the branch. But mama pecked on his little claws enough, he finally let go and he flew. Now here's what Eugene wrote about that. Birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely. They can walk. They can cling. But flying is their characteristic action, and not until they fly are they living at their best gracefully and beautifully. He goes on to say this, giving—my word's not His, whether it's our time, our abilities, our finances—giving is what we do best. It is the air to which we were born. It's the action that was designed into us before our birth. Some of us try to desperately hold on to ourselves, to live for ourselves. We look so bedraggled and pathetic doing it, hanging on to the dead branch of a bank account for dear life, afraid to risk ourselves on the untried wings of giving. We don't think we can live generously because we have never tried. But the sooner we start, the better, for we are going to have to give up on our lives finally, and the longer we wait, the less time we have for the soaring and swooping life of grace. Hmm. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 and 25. "One person gives freely, yet gains even more." Remember, you can't outgive God. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Our tendency is to hoard and say, we just got to survive. Take a step, small step, with time, your abilities that are unique to you, your finances, and, and bless give. Last Saturday night, here at Northland, we did a trunk retreat for this community. Didn't charge, just opened up our parking lot. Over 3,000 people came. I love that. I love how so many of you, almost 40 trunks were opened up, and another 40 volunteers, and 40,000 pieces of candy were donated. And I thought of that verse last Saturday night, as I was going out and looking over my Nathan Clark uh, beard that I — he refreshes others will be refreshed. It's, you know, Northland can have a great temptation because Dorothy has been through some difficult waters in a transition and financially is still there. And the tendency can be to hoard to clutch, and if we take that approach, the Northern that we know will not survive. We must continue to be generous, to be giving, to refresh others. Because it's a thermostat, if we're going to be fully alive, we can influence that by our generosity. Let me give you a third reading, I'll do these last two a lot, a lot more quickly. My. My generosity serves as a thermostat and it it influences my experience of security, my experience of fulfillment, but it also will influence my experience of significance. Everybody wants to be significant. How's that work? I think we want to bolster our own importance. No, through our impact within His kingdom agenda, that's where it's at. Verse 12, the service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Many express, He says what you're doing, what's going on, is that you're having an impact through his generosity. I was getting a cup of coffee a while back at a coffee shop downtown called Credo. No, they're, they're, they're not paying me for this advertisement, it's just, it's, but it's a great community place. And one of the things they're involved, I, th- I think some believers are involved with it, and they are involved in, in, in terms of community service, and uh, one of their deals is you name your price of your, your coffee. And I was behind a guy, and the guy, the, the, the barista was explaining this to him. The guy said, what? I na- name a price? Yeah, you name your price. And, uh, and you'd think a lot of people would abuse that. I'm sure there are some people who do. But a lot of other people are more generous. Why did they do that? And so, he's explaining this to the guy, and he showed him this. There were a stack of them, so I took one and looked at it. Here's the deal, it's a manifest for Credo Coffee, says, the sum of all the small unexamined choices we make every day will build a momentum in our lives. The sum total of all those unexamined choices. Without intention, our culture will direct that momentum toward comfort, entertainment, and isolation. There's nothing wrong with bigger TV screens and comfier couches. We're not—we're just convinced that they will not leave us satisfied. We'll need something more substantial. We build substantive lives with successful small choices. So reject apathy and engage the world. Do more than just exist. Pursue meaning. Man, I almost turned the page thinking the next one would say, engage people to be fully alive in Jesus. (laughs) But that's why you name our price. Because my sense of significance grows through my impact, my impact comes around from my generosity. And so, when he says, hey, you do this, there are a lot of people that are going to get it and get going. And what what Michelle read earlier, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, that passage on grace, here's where it leads. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And there is no way on God's green earth or in Scripture's massive truths that I can justify my way out of that and say, I was created for good works, which will involve everything but. My finances, or everything but my time, everything but me giving of my abilities—it's all of me engaged. That that when and I begin to trust God with it, and it ramps up my sense of significance. So it's not just my the, my, the thermostat for my um, sense of fulfillment, and it's not just my thermostat. And you look at the beginning of that text for for that whole aspect of security. But there's a there's a fourth. Authenticity is a longing that we've got. And when I'm generous, it doesn't just impact my security and fulfillment and my sense of significance. It will impact my experience of authenticity. Why? Well, I'm, I'm literally putting my money where my mouth is as I'm engaging with Jesus. Verse 13, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience So, hear these words, service. You've proved something, you've demonstrated something, and you were demonstrating His Gospel of Grace basically. It involves obedience that accompanies your confession of the Gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. So, you're showing people, verse 24 of chapter 8 we looked at last week, you're showing people, therefore show these, these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. It's authenticity. It, when I'm, I'm giving it, it's, it's, it's me moving from the realm of just theory and words to actual lifestyle and cadence. And God takes this initiative through being gracious to me. Uh, a month ago, I was teaching in Austria on the life of the gospel, and for a couple of days was visiting with some friends of ours that live over there. And they're uh, f- from America, but they're, they're actually opera singers, and, but both serious followers of Jesus. And uh, they told me the story that his parents sent them a care package Of. Uh, as for his birthday, so it's a cash gift and several other things that he loved. The box arrived having been opened and emptied. It had already been opened and emptied. Somebody in the postal service, either in America or in Europe, had stolen all the contents. And somebody else maybe saw it and felt bad and, and taped it up, and they—so they get this empty thing. And was heartbreaking, but I thought, how often has God given me something? it was intended for someone else. Maybe it was some finances, maybe it was some time, maybe it was some abilities. And I I kept it for myself. God has blessed Northland. He's been extravagant to you individually and to us. May we be extravagant in being conduits and not just containers and pipes and not just buckets. And may this community know not just 3,000 people on a Saturday night, but thousands more through so many things that we can do. But it starts with us each saying, I've been made alive and now I want to live.